Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 30, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. Today, we're going to follow Danielle Watt from her stellar STEM outreach work at UCI Physical Sciences to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. While continuing to say lots about how zip codes matter, she's got news from her own new zip code, which has seen a lot this last month. In the second segment, UCI urban professor Scott Bowens also returns to the show. He examines the manner in which urban planning, education, and practice bakes into the system considerable inequalities. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back. And returning to the show is my first guest, Dr. Danielle Watt, Director of the Office of Biomedical Graduate Research of Education and Training at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine and Administrative Director of the Life Sciences Summer Undergraduate Research Program. Danielle completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Chemistry from Albany State University and her PhD in Biological Organic Chemistry from the University of Connecticut. There she studied how chemicals in the environment may damage DNA causing mutations that could ultimately lead to lung cancer. She later conducted biomedical research in cancer development and DNA replication and repair as a postdoc at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences at the NIH. Before transitioning to higher education administration to focus her efforts on professional development of early career science and increasing underrepresented minorities in STEM through managing undergraduate research programs and K through 12 outreach, Danielle was a visiting scientist at Umeå University, Sweden. After her years at UC Irvine's Physical Science Center known as CASEL, Danielle moved on to her current appointment last summer at the University of Minnesota, a community which has become the ground zero of the massive inflection point in our society, about which we'll also be talking today. Welcome, Danielle Watt. Thank you so much, Claudia, for inviting me back. I'm excited to be with you. Thank you, thank you. Daniel, let's first have you talk about your transition from the University of California, Irvine, to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Talk about getting set up this last year. Our loss is their gain for sure. You're needed even more where you are right now. Thank you, Claudia, for that. I really appreciate the sediment that you know um, Minnesota has gained me. And um, so in my transition, I started here mid-October. In my role here, I help with our diversity, inclusion, and equity initiatives, also with our outreach and recruitment efforts of underrepresented students in the biomedical sciences to our graduate programs. And so um, had to get used to being in winter again from coming from Southern California. So dealing with the snow this past year and having to relocate. I've definitely miss being in Orange County, being, of course, at University of California, Irvine, having to build a network here in Minnesota. So coming in and learning the culture and the environment here, getting to know the faculty, the staff, the leadership, the graduate students. And so that hasn't actually been as hard as I thought it would be. Okay. But it's just in this first year, really trying to acclimate. And then of course, with COVID-19 and the most recent you know, a, a occurrence with the death of George Floyd, and so I've been working from home um, over three and a half months now. So, you know, trying to adapt to, to that as well as connecting to other people on campus. Well, some of the faculty I'm interviewing, they have been cleared to come to their campus, but there's no, I mean, I'm asking that because it would allow you, I'm sure, to be a whole lot more productive. You, you have more things at your fingertips. You're not allowed to go back to campus yet? No. So we are asked that if we're able to work from home, that we continue to work from home. In the past two weeks, we have had some research labs and essential personnel have been able to go to campus yes. in the past several months. But we are now opening some of our research labs 
where the students and faculty actually are on a modified schedule. So we're still practicing social distancing, where one or two people are in the lab to be able to pick up and continue their research projects. And hopefully, especially for the students who are going to be graduating this year, so that way they can have priority in getting in and having access to the um, equipment and other materials that they would need to finish up those experiments to be able to defend their dissertation and move on to the next phase of their career. And so we're, we've been working on that the past couple of weeks. Part of that was delayed the week that George Floyd was killed. Um, and so with the protests and uh, subsequent riots, we did have a delay in that process. But some of the students have been going back into lab these past couple of weeks. But I'm still working from home and anticipate working from home at least for the next month or so. Well, Danielle, we have a whole lot of outreach programs to talk about, but since you do bring up George Floyd's killing, I know listeners are going to be really interested in what was going on for you in this maximal moment, and then we'll talk about some of your outreach programs talk yes. about, and your, your students' dispositions toward these unfolding events. Yes. So, of course, I learned about the killing of Mr. George Floyd the next day. And, um, you know, I had family members calling me. I had a a really great conversation with my godfather Mm -hmm. in regards to who lives in, in, in Connecticut, in regards to just the state of things, and that it was so reminiscent of other events in history and just trying to get an understanding of, you know, where we are, of course, worrying about my safety. And I was like, well, I've been in the house, you know, I haven't really left the house until, you know, if I need groceries, I've only been leaving for necessity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes I will go out for walks. But then as I would watch the news and learned where it happened, to learn that he was murdered, just three miles from where I live, of course, being new to the area and trying to figure out the neighborhoods and the vicinity of where some of the protests were happening, where some of the riots were happening, and just being conscious to to be indoors. And then learning, you know, a few days later that where some of the riots that led to fires was within a two-mile radius of where I lived, Mm -hmm. and just wondering, you know, was it going to be moving into my direction? Should I go out and protest? And then understanding where I am in my position as an administrator at the University of Minnesota, that I'm in a unique position to hopefully impact change and just recognizing what are some of the things that I can do if I don't protest, you know, physically go out and protest, but through, you know, monetary contributions through supporting students that might be protesting or having a difficult time um, adjusting to life in isolation with COVID-19, but then also the you know, Black Lives Matter movement and just recognizing that I do impact a number of lives mm-hmm. in my position and, and recognizing that there's other things that I can do and also respecting other people's you know, decision to either protest in whatever way that looks for them. And so I think that was some, a topic of conversation that I've had with, uh, you know, a few people in regards to what can we do if you're physically unable or just maybe not comfortable with protesting, especially in, with the pandemic, and especially if you've had family members that were impacted, like that was something that I was very conscious of because mm-hmm. I had two aunts who were, you know, hospitalized and we're in critical condition with COVID-19. And, and how are they? Well, thank God that, you know, they have definitely pulled through. Um, weren't sure about one and mm-hmm. happy to say that, you know, they're home and we have recovered. And But you just knowing the amount of people who are not able to say that and to be thinking about not only your safety, but the safety of others if you're, um, you know, engaging in, in a public place or just engaging with other people, period. And so for me, that's what it was, is just, I had to be conscious of, especially as a black woman, you know, in Minneapolis, I don't live too far from the university campus. Again, as I mentioned, I only lived a few miles from where 
George Floyd was killed and where some of the riots were happening, but even hearing from colleagues who might have been literally blocks away or students who were blocks away and just learning about their experience during this or what they were feeling with some of the things that have been going on, not only in Minneapolis, but across you know, the country and other states and other cities. And so it has really generated dialogue on our campus, which I'm definitely happy to see and, and excited that our students and faculty and staff are at least having the conversation. Some people are still uncomfortable with having the conversation, but then others are finding their voice in being uncomfortable and recognizing that there is systemic racism and oppression in our system here in the U.S., and it, especially being on a college campus, you know, an institution of higher learning, which has systems of oppression. And for especially our students to recognize that and say that change needs to happen and they are the ones who are implementing change definitely gives you hope that it is not going to happen overnight. But these are things that I find um, hope in is that these students are going to, especially if they're in graduate school or even undergraduate education, is that they're going to be around for at least four years. And so they can keep the pressures on our leadership and our community to really implement change. But when they graduate and move on, they'll be a part of the workforce that will have the awareness of the systems of oppression that we have in this country. And they'll be prepared to make a change in those spaces and be able to you know, choose to join an organization that makes a conscious effort to hold true the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion and to dismantle systemic racism and other forms of discrimination. So I'm, I'm very hopeful in that regard that there are many people who may not have been or maybe did not understand you know, privilege. And then this has also been a time for me to recognize that as a Black woman um, who is a scientist, that my level of education is a privilege. Um, me being able-bodied is a privilege. And I think another piece of the Black Lives Matter movement is that African Americans in this country have been under a system of oppression since its beginning but there are you know, other identities that um, have been supportive of the movement because they see themselves or see an injustice. And you know, our country is, have, has a history of, of oppressing a number of different um, cultures and identities. So it's nice to see everyone really unify behind this movement and um, to implement some form of change. Well, in preparation of this interview, Danielle, you shared with me a University of Minnesota panel, it was entitled Envisioning the Future, Revisiting the Right to Health. And this is very important. I'm gonna say the date was May 5th. And one of the presenters, she's a Regents Professor at University of Minnesota, Fianuela Ni Aulain, and she is a faculty director of Human Rights Center. And she, in the last two minutes of that webinar, she repeated a tweet. This is May 5th, and I quote, the revolution will not be quarantined, end of quote. She's got allyship down. When I heard that, I just stopped everything. I thought that was really amazing. Well, I, I also, and you, you can respond to that if you want. No, I mean, yes, that's a powerful statement to even kind of like a foreshadowing. Yes, that. exactly. <laughs> So, but I'm thinking now when you were earlier describing your disposition early in the mobilization after George Floyd's killing was you're negotiating a new community, a new university system, and uh, there are riots now flaring up. I mean, I, it's very unenviable, all of these, oh, and, and what's your role going to be in all of these, the physical, the professional, all of these arenas, it's really extraordinary, the tasks you were up to. So I just want to mention that, just call that out. Well, my guest, for those of you who've just joined us, is Daniel Watt, Director of the Office of Biomedical 
Graduate Research of Education and Training at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine and Administrative Director of the Life Sciences Summer Undergraduate Research Program. And we'll talk about that program, but we're talking about these structural issues. You previously, when you were on Ask a Leader, when you were still at UC Irvine, you were talking about zip codes matter, and now you're dealing with some Minnesota zip codes. Talk about those disparities in education for your population that is mostly of interest. Yes, and I'm so happy you mentioned zip codes matter because that was one conversation that we've had that really stood out to me. And I just loved that terminology you used. And it's like, I'm going to steal that. Oh, it's not mine. <laughs> I was just carrying it. <laughs> and so, um, yes, yeah, so in my role, we're looking to actually develop new programming. It'll be brand new for our office of outreach to the local community here. So again, the zip codes matter piece comes in because there's a significant disparity in education in the K through 12 public school system in Minnesota. And so Minnesota is, according to a 2019 report, is ranked number 12 in the country for its public school education. But if you look at that report, there's at least a 20% difference in the preparedness of high school students to enter college between if you're an ethnic minority versus, so, you know, if you're African-American or Latinx or um, a member of a Native American or indigenous population versus the white population in Minnesota. And so it's a 20% difference. Also another 20% difference if you come from a high income community versus a low income community. And, and that's irregardless of race. And so one thing you, know, you have to consider is if that's the statistics for a state that's ranked 12th in the nation, what about the other 38 states? What do Good point. their yes. education system looks like for students of color, and this is from elementary, middle school, and high school. What does it look like for college preparedness? If you have a 20% gap between wealthy white um, students and those that are, are, are you know, persons of color and um, low income. And so those are things that in looking at the report, I was really surprised about because a part of my position I mentioned recruitment of yes college students for our graduate programs. And so we're recruiting students within Minnesota, but the institutions where I have been active just this year alone, and my um, predecessor has been very active for a number of years in recruiting students are from other states in minority serving institutions and historically black colleges and universities. And so we're looking at the, the, the statistics from these um, other states where we're trying to recruit students, you know, from Georgia, Virginia, um, Puerto Rico, Florida, Texas. I mean, I don't know where they all rank, but most of those other places um, that we recruit students from are not within the top 20. And so again, with Minnesota being ranked top 12, but having a huge um, disparity in education, it makes you wonder, well, what is, a, what is the situation for students coming from the other states that we're actively right. trying to recruit from? Are they gonna be prepared one for college, but then two for a rigorous um, graduate program in the sciences? Wow. I, I just hesitate to guess where California is, where you used to be. Uh, based here, I imagine it's well below that with a, a huge disparity, even at its lower ranking here, but I don't have those hard numbers with me. So and let's talk about your population of interest. I don't wanna say target population, it's so freighted now, I just wanna say population of interest. That yes. the, there are STEM careers, and we're looking at now, when you're, you're trying to reach out to these prospective students and prospective professionals, that the STEM careers, including healthcare professionals, they're yielding some real uneven results for underrepresented minorities, that there is a lethal hit 
in this COVID crisis of personnel of color in hospitals, there's that problem that the mortality rate of COVID cases of the persons of color. The other breaking news is in STEM or tech at least, as representation goes, like the current Reddit CEO, Stacy Brown Philpot is stepping down soon. That's one person that probably was a commanding figure for you to point to, but that Silicon Valley is still reporting 60% white, 30% Asian, and the, the rest others. With these headwinds, how, Daniel, are you reaching out to your students of interest? Yes, so I was shaking my head when I meant to say yes to all the things that you were saying. <laughs> so one, um, one of the strategies that we have is meeting the students where they are. Yes. And that means getting involved and in going to their campuses. We have had an established history and partnership with universities, you know, I mean, the University of Puerto Rico, um, they have several different locations there that we you know, visit and recruit students for our summer undergraduate research program, which you had talked about earlier, which is we call LSERP. We love these acronyms. Of course. So, <laughs> um, we also go to Howard University, Hampton University. Um, also, we have a, a new partnership. We're starting with my alma mater. I'm a graduate of the HBCU Albany State University, as you mentioned at the top yes. of the program and um, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And so there are a number of institutions that we recruit from and have developed a relationship for at least five or more years. And, um, you know, my, I will ha had a partnership with Albany State when I was at UC Irvine and have been able to um, expand that partnership to include now the University of Minnesota. And so even though I'm not at UCI, there are faculty there and administrators who've been able to make connections and had connections um, existing with Albany State. And I'm so glad that that's continuing because these are opportunities that students from um, historically black colleges and minority serving institutions need. You know, those institutions don't have the resources that a University of Minnesota has or that, you know, an Ivy League school has, especially any research in intensive university has. Well, especially now with COVID just emptying out every single public agency budget. So it's going to get really steep here soon. Yes. And then you had um, summer research programs this year that were canceled due to COVID. And so how are those students going to get the research experience that they would need to apply and be competitive for a graduate program? How are they? Exactly. That's, that's the that's question. That's the work now. in progress right now. <laughs> yes. So one, actually one thing that we have been able to do and a number of institutions have um, is offer virtual research programs. And we have modeled our program this summer for a small population of students, especially those that were graduating seniors that would not be eligible to come next summer. And we partnered with Vanderbilt University to host co-host a um, virtual uh, research program. How's that but going? It's really great. I've been learning a lot. I mean, it, don't get me wrong. It's, it's been <laughs> pretty intense. Yes. But the students are learning how to communicate their science using ah. And so they're exactly, they're developing additional skills that essential to yeah. Exactly. That scientists usually are not technically trained on. So they're developing important communication skills, yeah. not only to you know, other scientists, but developing um, you know, skills to communicate to general public, but using digital media. And that's, you know, these are skills that we're not trained as we do not receive technical training for as scientists. And the students also have an opportunity to develop a research project. All of the faculty members who had agreed to accept the students in a in-person program have um, decided to come on in the virtual program and mentor these students. And so it was really great to have the support of our faculty to um, uphold that commitment they've made to the students and having the students research a particular project or a topic and propose experiments that they would do if they were in the lab and to really get to the point where, and I think in, in part of this is not always taught in a summer research program where students really don't have a full understanding of method development. Um, okay. 
experiments and designing a scientific question. And so the, our students really have an opportunity to do that. And I would definitely say if it wasn't for um, our partnership with Vanderbilt, uh, we probably would not have done this virtual program in its current format. And so that's just a case where, um, you know, our director, Colin Campbell, has really utilized his partnerships in uh, reaching out to his colleagues and asking for assistance. Um, so yeah, we've been able to have a virtual program. I know there's a few other places across the country that also we're offering like a virtual research program so the students can have some type of opportunity this summer to be competitive when they apply to graduate school. Well, Daniel, I can imagine that they were disappointed that this whole program was going to be reconfigured. Do you think that they appreciate that there are some other opportunities that are taking place in developing them as researchers and professionals in any way? Do you think that they understand that so they're actually they're reinforced in their preparation for a beautiful grand career ahead of them? Absolutely. I remember talking to the students just to see if, just to gauge their interest. Yes. And the first thing all of the students that was for this year, we only were looking at working with graduating seniors. So everyone else that we accepted in our program is going to be coming next summer. But the students this year were really excited to have the opportunity and we weren't sure what the hours were going to be per mm -hmm. week and if right. we were going to be able to pay them because we were trying to move fast because we knew time was of the essence. Mm -hmm. And all of the students were very appreciative because for some of the students, um, they were counting on this stipend to be able to pay for part of their fall semester, whether right. it would be books or housing or even just food or to help provide for their families. Right. And so um, we were mindful of that fact. And, and Colin, being the director of the virtual program this year, really took his time in, in really trying to come up with a quality program that the students can enjoy and still receive the funds that we have promised to them. And so it was a little bit of relief for the students, but they were so appreciative. And every week they tell us, you know, they're really thankful to have the opportunity and especially that the faculty members still committed to having, you know, mentoring them over their virtual program. And um, some of the students, of course, have also been invited back when we're able to come back onto campus. Yes. Whenever that is. Exactly. Yes. To visit the lab and, you know, try to at least meet with the, the faculty mentor they had this summer. And, and to get to your other question about how are we working with or meeting or to in recruiting our target population is, um, so I mentioned, you know, going to the institutions, but we also attend a number of what they call diversity conferences. And these are conferences that underrepresented minority students attend that are in different science disciplines and so nationally or is yes. that around minutes okay nationally and so one of the programs is um, SACNIS or the Society for the Advancement of Chicano Hispanic and Native Americans in Science um, so they have mm -hmm. an annual conference we go and we recruit students there also Abercams uh, which is the annual biomedical research conference for minority students and again, we've, we've had uh, an established history of attending these conferences. And Abercams, we actually are, have been a, a co-sponsor for a number of years as well. And I've attended those conferences when I was at UC Irvine. And so okay. I definitely know the importance of them. And a couple of I have also attended as a postdoc. And so it's always great to go year after year and just see the next generation of scientists and just see their enthusiasm for science and wanting to pursue their graduate degree and um, seeing them, you know, maybe years later recruiting for their institution or some of them are faculty or in industry. And it's a really great meeting. Those two, I think, are the largest um, national diversity in science conferences where they have on average probably over 5,000 people that attend. So my guest has been Daniel Watt, director of the Office of Biomedical Graduate Research of Education 
and training at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine and Administrative Director of the Life Sciences Summer Undergraduate Research Program. Thank you so much for your time on Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, even though the neighborhood is a bit removed from where you used to be. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you so much, Claudia. I really appreciate being invited back on your show. And I look forward to additional conversations in the future. And again, just thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be right back with my next guest, Scott Bowens, urban planning professor at UC Irvine. We'll look up the institution of urban planning as it contributes to inequities around the American society. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Scott Bolins, Professor and Endowed Chair in Peace and International Cooperation Planning, Policy and Design at UCI's School of Social Ecology. When an urban crisis blows up, he's been kind enough to appear. This time, I'm putting him on the institutional spot about urban planning the extent to which all fields of urban planning, housing, economic development, land use and transportation, reinforce the inequities about which this nation is getting a group seminar right now. The other two times Scott appeared on this show, my full disclosure was that we were a marital pair on the sabbaticals he took for his urban research. This round, my full disclosure, is that we attended the same urban planning program at UNC Chapel Hill. He got the PhD, I was happy with my master's. Scott's research that he brings to this interview focuses on nationalistic ethnic conflict and urbanism, politically divided cities, urban growth policy, and intergovernmental approaches to planning. Among his many publications, as I've mentioned on previous shows, but I want you all to hear it one more time, on ethnic and divided cities are his books, City and Soul in Divided Cities, Cities, Nationalism and Democratization on Narrow Ground and Urban Peace Building in Divided Cities, and most recently, Trajectories of Conflict and Peace, Jerusalem and Belfast, 1994. Scott continues to participate in national and international forums. United Nations Development Program by Communal Development Program, London School of Economics and Political Science, Crisis States Research Center, Canadian Consortium on Human Security, Comparative Urban Studies Project, Wilson International Center for Scholars, Rockefeller Foundation, Bellagio Center, Swedish Institute, and the Olaf Palma International Center. Scott comes to us today from his office with legal sanctions that faculty are able to get at this time. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, now called Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Scott Bolins. Always good to be with you, Claudia. Thank you. Well, you've been all your academic life about income inequality, starting with your definitive work on 50 of the most populated cities in the US and their suburban rings, such the definitive quantitative work you had. Now fast forward 32 years of lecturing and researching urban affairs, whereas I said in the intro that the nation's getting this group seminar on public health and racial justice all at the same time. Scott, let me give you a chance to take a moment to consider this huge inflection point. I would like to start with uh, a topic that's on the minds of a lot of listeners, I'm sure, and that is systemic racism. What do we mean by that? And I wanna call attention to the fact that we've had a sustained, systematic, and intentional program by government in this country to deprive blacks of equal opportunities in housing, education, and employment. Sustained and systematic, for many of those years, legalized discrimination against blacks in the placement of public housing that was very segregative, in the denial of home mortgage insurance to blacks, an extension of those insurance programs. Uh, they would not go into any neighborhoods that were racially mixed. So those insurance programs, mortgage insurance programs, were constantly reinforcing white segregation, land use regulations by local governments. We've created over about a hundred year period of time from the Civil War 
until the end of formal legal discrimination in 1968 in housing, we created this foundation of disadvantage and segregation in our urban areas. And that foundation of disadvantage and inequality exists today. It did not go away when we made housing discrimination illegal in 1968. That created a foundation that's with us today in very unequal neighborhoods between black and white neighborhoods. And blacks are disproportionately locked in place in neighborhoods with poor educational opportunities, higher crime, more family breakdown, poorer access to healthy foods, fractured social capital, and lesser economic opportunities. So we, the United States government, created this foundation of structural disadvantage that still exerts tremendous power on opportunities in this country today, even though 1968, you know, that's a number of years ago, but that foundation still is with us creating massive amounts of inequality of opportunity in this country. I think one additional reinforcement of those inequalities were those covenants, conditions, and restrictions in homeowners associations that attach to fee ownership of real estate, where certain racial identities were not allowed ownership of those properties. So I'm not sure that urban planning contributed to that, but that's another institutional, the most localized of restrictions on ownership and advantages. Yeah, that, yeah those were written into the deeds of the, uh, the title saying that this property shall never be sold to a black person. Those those things were upheld by courts all the way through the 1940s and 1950s. And Claudia, one interesting thing to consider, a lot lot of people, conservatives will say, hey, we've had race-neutral policies since 1968. We're over that. Well, no, the past has tremendous effects. All those decades where the government was legally discriminating against Blacks, those were decades of huge amounts of urban and suburban growth, huge amounts of housing development. So that means that whites had access to all that housing. Blacks did not. That housing has inflated tremendously in value through the decades. And where we see the direct effects of that historic foundation is in the disparities of wealth between Blacks and whites. Wealth is not just income, it's also housing, it's also stocks, but I'm focusing on housing here. Right, which is the largest asset that can be inherited from generation to generation. And we have a wealth ratio of 10 to 1. The average white household has 10 times greater wealth than a black household. That's where we see the effects of that history, and it shows that history is still alive. Well, I want to say I'm very appalled by still encountering individuals, I'll say they're minimally to very sophisticated members of a community that continue to be, frankly, pretty ignorant about redlining and that inherited wealth gap that you're talking about, which is ratcheting upward, opening up that gap. Are you finding that students, this is the first time they're hearing about it, because I'm interested in that educational piece, your training, your launching, urban professionals. So are you bringing that up and are they hearing that for the first time in your I, seminars? I teach, I teach a class on urban inequality and they get a whole lot on redlining. Redlining has two meanings. It's interesting. It has a very specific meaning Yes. and it, and it has the general meaning. The general meaning, basically people say redlining today to refer to basically discrimination, that redlining is kind of connoting this, this general sense of discrimination. It has a very specific application, actually. This is the the mortgage insurance agencies of the federal government would draw lines around neighborhoods in red pens. Wasn't that the the GI Bill that that did that? It included a GI, but it goes back to the Federal Housing Administration in the early 1930s, the FHA. Right, right, right. Um, and their extension of insurance. Without insurance, you really cannot, you cannot get a loan. So it's critical, this insurance part, this mortgage insurance. And the insurance would, would draw lines around neighborhoods that they considered good and bad. And good neighborhoods were white neighborhoods with no, quote unquote, invasion of black residents. That's the term they used. Those were the good neighborhoods. That's where they were going to pump in insurance. Neighborhoods that were primarily black or transitioning to black 
or even had a few black residents in them were bad neighborhoods. Those were places where the mortgage insurance would not be extended because the federal government saw transitioning or mixed or integrated neighborhoods as not economically sustainable and thus not a good deal for the federal government to insure loans in those areas. So in this self-fulfilling prophecy or the self-emptying prophecy, the federal government said those things are not sustainable. And it turns out that they weren't sustainable because they were not getting uh, mortgage insurance pumped into those more mixed, integrated neighborhoods. So the federal government was basically promoting the idea that there's no reality, there's no desire to have integrated, racially mixed neighborhoods in this country, that they were not economically sustainable. And that was, that was the real obfuscation of, of the use of economic language to promote what really was direct racial discrimination. And one of the other sectors of urban planning being transportation, so that, that reinforces this red line was where those super highways were built to wall off literally a black community from the white neighbor, the white community that would separate all kinds of benefits that could have been happening for actually both parties. Yeah, the, the strategies the federal government used, many levels of government used, were very systematic and sustained. And transportation is another one. Routes that intentionally partitioned black areas away from white areas. We saw that as recently, by the way, as the Century Freeway uh, in the Los Angeles metro oh, area. Right. I mean, that, that's as recent, this 1980s, 1990s. And it was, it was done that way. Nobody would ever say that directly. But if you look at, uh, at the neighborhood composition, you see that clearly. And then another big federal program was federal renewal, the rebuilding of, of central cities to create, to tear down, first of all, all sorts of communities of, of, of minority neighborhoods, tear them down and build convention centers and uh, replace it with housing that was very high end high-end housing, high-income housing. Kind of How about Dodger Stadium? And Dodger Stadium, another great example of that. Um, and then in the, in the high-income residences that are built in urban renewal places, that really was the generator today of what we call gentrification, trying to bring back the white gentry, the white rich into central cities. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Scott Bolins, professor and endowed chair in peace and international cooperation, planning, policy, and design at UC Irvine's School of Social Ecology. And we're looking at the institution of urban planning as it has reinforced racial economic inequalities in American cities throughout the country. So I guess I'd, I'd like to point out too now, during the pandemic, we're seeing a new inequalities, as you've talked and written up about tech-based economy, reinforcing now the segregation of opportunity. This is another intersection of both the COVID pandemic and the Black Lives Matter racial justice issues. Talk about the advantages that tech sector workers have being able to work remotely versus the lower skilled and essential workforce that's taking the brunt of the pandemic. And Scott, talk about how you must have been able to talk about that in your last seminars. Talk about where that academic instructional piece is happening and how. Yeah, the general thoughts. First of all, the pandemic has revealed to us some real hard truths about uh, the level of inequality in our society. If there's one good thing about the pandemic, it might be that, that it's revealing uh, how deep and structural our inequalities are. I would say it, it's a potentially good thing. Hopefully some things could be done about that now. But you're right, lower skilled workers live in, first of all, denser neighborhoods. And we know that density uh, and contact is not a particularly good thing for, the, for COVID-19. So they it's live- It's not in, working out in Orange County at all. It's really a problem. Ex exactly, we see it Santa Ana and Anaheim are highest rates. 
Uh, so the dens- the density of living, the, the proximity of living is one thing. Second of all... Oh, and one, thing, one other thing that is breaking news locally is that the county government has, and maybe to the extent that uh, maybe some of the municipal, uh, maybe some of the city leadership, but they have suppressed the data that ties cases and deaths of COVID in particular zip codes. That has been suppressed within the last several weeks. Yes, not surprising given our board of supervisors for sure. Uh, the lower skilled workers, they live in denser neighborhoods. That's, that's one difficult thing. Their access to health facilities is more limited than in better neighborhoods, better parts of the metro area is the second thing. And then the third thing is what you mentioned. They're more likely to engage in essential services. I love the fact that we really understand what the most important services are in society now, the essential services. They're the people that they're, they're the janitors, they're the cleaners, they're the people uh, maybe at the grocery stores. They're the people that are sustaining us through this pandemic. At the skilled nursing facilities. Skilled nursing where facilities. Where it's blowing up like nowhere else. The essential service, of course, puts them closer to the front line of getting COVID. So it puts them more at risk, more vulnerable. So the poor, lower skilled members, I mean, they are increasingly vulnerable, just lower income levels and vulnerability are related in this society. For tech workers, we can hang out, including education, educators, we can hang out with our remote services and be kind of inoculated, if you will, against the pandemic. But in a bubble. In a bubble, live in, live in a bubble and, and be protected. So the, that inequality between the types of businesses that are generating tremendous amounts of income inequality today, we're seeing it now reflected in vulnerability, public health vulnerability also. So urban planning talks about the different ways that resources are allocated. And I wanna talk to that when political campaigns are underway, the zero sum gain trap always rears its ugly head. We can see it now in terms of the, 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 as I said, the intersection of both the COVID pandemic and the Black Lives Matter mobilization, that the resources, let's say allocated to healthcare, how does urban planning deal with the zero sum that allocating more resources to a sector of the population in fact, is not a zero-sum game. It is, in fact, a development that would reinforce public health throughout the country, throughout all sectors of every community. How does urban planning take that up, Scott? Well, Claudia, your question is directly into politics now and the rhetoric involved in politics in terms of using zero-sum game to protect advantage what the zero-sum argument is, uh, that the advantaged groups uh, worry that something's going to be taken away from them if we improve the lot of the more disadvantaged, lower-income populations. The reality is probably very much different. You mentioned health. If the lower sector of the uh, economy is healthier and has more access to public health facilities, the overall population is going to be healthier. It's, and our health bills will overall be lesser, not more expensive for everybody. That's the idea behind the Affordable Care Act. So it's that, you know, zero sum is one of those simplistic formulas that, the, adva- that the advantaged use. It's, it's, um, it gets people's attention that there's only so much that we have to distribute to something. And we, the, the advantaged, that are usually using that argument, we're gonna lose things that we have. We're gonna lose some of our advantages. The reality is different than that. And also I would say, I'm, a, I'm pretty much of a left liberal. I would say some of our advantages, maybe we don't uh, deserve all the advantages that we have. We don't need to live in such plush, uh, gorgeous environments uh, to protect ourselves against the, the, what we perceive as the evils of the world. We live in this kind of self-contained uh, uh, mental space, psychological space, which I don't think is good for us, us well, the, adva- the advantaged. And how does urban planning, as you're training professionals and some academics, how does urban planning in your work 
take up this recognizing that frame, recognizing that trap of zero sum? Well, we deal, we deal a lot in the program that I'm involved in here and also myself throughout my career and in my teaching. We, we talk about, we emphasize equity quite a bit, uh, increasing equality of opportunity for the disadvantaged. Planning actually has in its, in its guidelines and its ethics to, to, that our, more attention should be paid to the disadvantaged in our planning policies and procedures. That doesn't always happen, but that's what we teach. And we always are looking at the voice of the marginalized. We're looking at bottom-up strategies of, of community involvement, of planning, to get the voice of the marginalized represented at the decision table and hopefully get those decisions shaped uh, more to, to help the disadvantaged. The students that are coming out of our program, I think, are, yes. very, are very aware of equity and inequality of opportunity. We have many first-generation students. We have many uh, non-white students, and they know it. They, they get it. When we talk about this, they understand it. Many of them have, have been brought up in such uh, uh, disadvantaged uh, areas of the country, and they understand what we're talking about. Um, and they're going to be good, uh, good planners in the future pursuing this because they feel it in their bones. They feel it from, from growing up. Well, an individual I've become acquainted with that's involved with economic development and actually uh, adult education will make the distinction, Scott, you're talking about equity. He'll make the distinction that there's equity and there's justice. And equity, everybody's got an even crack at something, but justice is about making up for the disparities that have been massing up, as you were talking about, like over the last century. So does your training, preening of these urban planners move on to that theme of justice more than just equity and how? Yeah, we do. Yeah, it's an important point, moving from equity, which is kind of this, everybody- It's a catch-all. <laughs> equity can be, everybody can, they can start the race at the same starting line. Now, if, if one of those runners, using that analogy, if one of those runners is burdened by the past and burdened by growing up in a disadvantaged neighborhood, or family, uh, that runner, although he's, he's going to start at the same time as the other runner, is going to be at a disadvantage. So that's, that's talking about the kind of the historic weight. So we, we have to move from equality of opportunity to social justice. And social justice does look at history and make efforts to compensate that historical injustice. So that person at the starting line of the race has true equality of opportunity to win the race, not just to start it. And social justice is, is a good direction to go, and it's deeper. It's deeper than um, talking about equality of opportunity. Um, one of the interesting things about this, and it kind of goes back to what I said before about systemic uh, racism and the, the sustained, systematic, and intentional program by the government for over 100 years, you know, we talk a lot about affirmative action in the contemporary cases that two applicants of roughly similar uh, merit, the um, non-white applicant would get some preference, affirmative action. That's the contemporary sense. Now, if you go back in history, one can make the claim that for 192 years in this country, we have had affirmative action, 192 years. Mm -hmm. It's been affirmative action for white people. Right. Right, this uh, where it's been a legalized and promoted systemic racism. 192 years of affirmative action, white affirmative action, and you think of that the the foundation of inequality that's been created through almost 200 years of that in all the issues we're talking about: housing, neighborhood uh, quality, uh, access to health, access to healthy foods, to education, uh, education, everything that's linked to place, to neighborhood place, all, that, all those, the neighborhood level has been torn apart, fragmented, and made into this incredibly unequal foundational element in our society. There was a, a study recently in Harvard, it's a massive study, 30 million children were surveyed. They were born in 1988 and they were followed, not surveyed, they were followed. A longitudinal through, study. Yeah, whether they proceeded up the economic ladder. 
um, what we call social mobility when they were 26 years old. So this is, uh, you know, somewhat recently that endpoint. They were born in 1988. And okay, how well have they done at 26 years old? 30 million children. And these statisticians looked at all sorts of things, parental background, individual education, everything that you can imagine that could determine social mobility. And they came up with the most influential factor as being location of neighborhood. Huge and factor. That, and that go ahead, shows- Go that, ahead and name the, name the uh, it's Skeddy, I can't remember his name right now. Yeah, Raj Chetty. Raj C- Chetty. Yeah, C-H-E-T-T-Y, uh, Raj, Chetty and his colleagues at Harvard University. It's just an amazing study. And what that shows you is how important neighborhood is. Neighborhood creates one, helps create one growing up. It either provides you opportunities in your neighborhood or community, or it doesn't. Community parks, uh, education, you know, run down the list of things that are so linked to your home site or your, where you uh, rent an apartment. And that's the leading determinant. And why that is so important is going back to systemic racism. We have a system of neighborhoods and cities and communities that are terribly unequal in the opportunities they provide. Listeners might recall when I was able to interview a member of the American Association of Colleges and Universities, and he cited that study and talked about how, how schools, how well public universities were performing for at least trying to make up for some of those inequities. It was it was a really, really interesting uh, opportunity to explore that. Well, well I w- you know, the corollary of that to pay attention to how important neighborhoods are, that means that if you put a disadvantaged black child in a good white neighborhood, that child's ability to him- improve and grow up the economic ladder improves significantly. And guess who else does? Point out who else improves. No, I mean, the white students improve too. The white students improve too. uh, Studies have shown mixed race, mixed uh, income education has that that diversity that is promoted and spawned there has great value to all students, including white in their life. Growing up in a diverse, amidst diversity prepares you for, for tomorrow's workplace. And that headline news never quite made it above the fold when, you know, it was the kind of corrosive, toxic public outcry with school busing. And, but, but the reality is the zero sum is a fraud that, there, that everybody benefits when everybody's in the classroom together. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations, Scott, for getting to the finish line this academic year 2019-2020. And as I thank you once again for taking the time today, what do you foresee will be the next reason for returning to this show? (laughs) Oh my goodness, what a question. Um, What's the next thing? I don't know, Claudia. Uh, What do you think? Do you have have a prediction? I'm I'm interviewing you. I'm tossed. That's a toss to you. Yeah, I, I know. I don't. I don't know. It's how do you how do you predict how do you predict the future? Who who could have predicted the pandemic other than I guess Bill Gates? <laughs> uh, I I uh, maybe a catastrophic climate change incident, something acute and catastrophic because the slow climate change isn't getting enough people's attention, but something catastrophic would occur, unpredictable what it might be, but that would probably be something that, okay. could, that could be viewed as a turning point. That makes a lot of sense, whether it's an urban factor, but um, <laughs> it'll be a multi-urban catastrophe that you know, we could take up. No, I'm, I'm shuddering thinking of that. Well, my guest was Scott Boland's professor and endowed chair in peace and international cooperation, planning, policy, and design at UCI's School of Social Ecology. Thanks again, Scott. My pleasure, Claudia. So folks, I really do want to know who's listening to the show. As a way of getting you to check in, I'd like your involvement. Here's an assignment for you. A recent editorial in the voice of OC raised the need to rename the John Wayne Airport. I'd like your suggestions for what you would rename this airport. Email me or tweet me at CL Shambaugh. 
That was my wrap. Next week, Stephanie Campbell, local maven serving on many grassroots boards, will present the hefty roster of speakers lined up with the local chapter of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. We'll speak with labor organizers next about their championing workers' health, how they made the case to city and state leaders to delay the opening of the happiest place on earth. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Mask up, folks. Like the mad media skills scientist Lucy Jones says, don't share your air.